you can turn to Revelation chapter 6 if you'd like to at this time. Um, we're in the fourth part of our series on the book of Revelation, the overlooked lessons from the book of Revelation. One of the things that Revelation shows me whenever I study it is this great vision of God, this great sense of who God is. And like the song says, he is unshakable, he is unstoppable, he is unchangeable. And isn't that something that we should cling on to and, and, and really take joy from? Amen? Yeah. Uh, our world has this great doubt about God's presence, about God's actual existence. And the church, if we pay attention, we experience God. We hear God's voice during our lives, in the good times and the bad. We, we know God working. We see God working. We hear his voice. That's, that's something the world doesn't have, and the world needs that. Uh, and we have it, and we get to share it. And so uh, I hope you're getting a lot out of this, uh, this series from Revelation. It's not quite as um, maybe traditional as what you're used to. Uh, Jesus once said in John chapter 8, 35, he said, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a, song, a son belongs to it forever. Isn't that true? If you're blood in, your blood, if you're blood family, your, your, your family no matter what. Uh, it doesn't matter how bad you act or whatever. Uh, you're still part of the family. It's just the way it is. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's talking about himself. He's talking about setting us free. How does he do that? How has he done that? He still does it today. He sets people free all the time. Because of the cross, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free by the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Anyone who believes in Jesus is set free from the judgment of God. From the judgment of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says this, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. I like that about Paul. He's honest about himself. He says, My conscience is clear before God. I'm doing whatever I can to be a good servant of God. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, he says. It is the Lord who judges me. Then he says, Hey, God judges me. God is going to judge me and deal with me and my walk with him. Even Paul says this. I'm amazed by that. The world hears the church talk about judgment, and immediately they feel what? They feel attacked. You know why they feel attacked? Because they don't, in their heart, they're not ready to meet God. They're not ready. They don't have that relationship that you and I have that brings peace and joy and comfort. They're not ready in their hearts to meet God. So when they hear the word judgment, they get uneasy. They, they feel attacked immediately. But the church, we don't have to shrink from the word judgment. We can use it. We, can, we understand that we're going to be under it. The church doesn't have to fear God's judgment. If the Son has set us free, we are truly free indeed. Amen? Amen. Right. Very few people, and this is true, very few people are capable of judging other people. Isn't that true? Have you noticed that in life? I have. Very few people are capable of judging other people. So that do not judge philosophy, it's alive and well in America today, but today that philosophy has also taken on the aspect of rejecting God's judgment too. The world says, don't judge me. Then it says, God's not going to judge me either. And that is so that drives the world today. So let me ask you this. If you're not a believer, let me ask you this. If someone you love was murdered, would you want a non-judgmental God? No, I would not. I don't think you would either. 
Bible-believing Christians look to God to be the ultimate judgment because we know, we know in our hearts and minds that he is a righteous being, more righteous than anybody else that we know or will ever know on this world. When unbelievers look for judgment against the wicked, they want a righteous judgment. Just ask them. But yet, who is the only one capable of giving a righteous judgment? It must be God alone. He is God alone. The book of Revelation shows us the martyred saints in heaven. It shows us lots of activity in heaven. Lots of things are going on. But it shows us, specifically here in chapter 6, the martyred saints in heaven are asking God a question. Have you ever thought about approaching God and asking God a question? When you, you think about that in a frivolous kind of way, and yeah, you want to ask him all kinds of things. But really, when you really talk about approaching a holy, righteous God, I'm not so sure I want to. And yet in heaven right now, the martyred saints are asking God a question about his judgment. And maybe we are asking this very same question. It's point number one on your outline. How long must we wait? Have you asked yourself that? About when is God going to do something? What are you doing? Where are you, God? What are you doing? How long must we wait? Under the altar in heaven, John saw a very troubling sight. It's in verse 9. He says, when he opened the, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. He says he saw these saints, those souls. This tells me that, hey, we aren't just, we don't have a soul. We are souls. And that our souls are our eternal selves. That we weren't going to live somewhere with God as believers. That means as unbelievers, we're going to live somewhere else too. Isn't that right? That's right, because we're souls. We're eternal souls. And they've been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they've maintained. So there are saints in heaven who've been martyred, who were killed because of their faith, and they're asking God this question. And according to the International Society for Human Rights, which is not religious in any way, it's just a secular organization that monitors world human rights around the world, 80%, get this, 80% of religious persecution around the world today is against Christians. 80%. According to an article in the Irish Times, Christians are the most persecuted religious group on earth today. Today, in the 21st century, not just the first, second, third, but today are the most persecuted group, religious group around the world. What does our, what does our culture say? It says the Muslims are the most persecuted because we're going over there and we're attacking their people and they're attacking their countries. That's not true. The facts are that Christians are the most persecuted people around the world. Today, Christians around the world suffer property damage to church buildings, specifically to steeples and to crosses. It's always been this way. Christians are jailed for blasphemy, for blasphemy against other religions, saying that they're wrong, that they're not true. They're executed for refusing to convert specifically to Islam or leaving Islam to become Christians and they're killed there as well. They're discriminated against for jobs, for housing, for justice. It's a sign of the times that we're living in that Christians are going through this, that the worldwide church, the true church that follows Christ is being persecuted unlike ever before. So the martyr saints in heaven right now are asking God, where are you? When will you do something? Look at verse 10. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They're asking, God, where are you? How much longer? When are you going to do something, God? Have you ever been that way yourself? Maybe not under persecution, just life. 
and you're asking, where are you, God? When are you going to do something to help me? Well, you're not alone. There are many others around the world that are struggling with that very same question. Many of them are in worse conditions than you and I are. God's response to their cries for judgment and justice is in verse 11. Look at it. Verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. Boy, is our God gracious? Yes, he is. We might be confused by that statement. We might understand, why would God just hand them this white robe and told them, just wait? Why would God do that? doesn't sound very comforting or relieving until we understand what the white robe means. The white robe symbolizes holiness. It symbolizes purity. It's a statement of dignity. Dignity is taken away from Christians by persecutors when they, when they abuse them, when they take away everything from them. But God restores his people's dignity by giving them a white robe from himself, symbolizing their dignity in his eyes, their purity, their holiness. Then we begin to say, okay, here's what God's doing. He's, he's comforting. He is taking care of his people in some way. In Romans 12, 12, Paul said this, and this might be hard to, to accept in the sense of persecution. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Paul says, whatever the world throws at you, keep your hope. Be patient. Be faithful. Pray. How can a persecuted Christian who's being abused, whose wife is being raped maybe, or children being taken away, how can the Christian stay joyful that way? Only through their hope in God. That's it. That's the only answer there is. And for us to say there's some other answer to be cheerful, to put a big smile on your face, that does no good. But they have hope in God, then God will work things out. God will take care of things. He will give them that white robe. How can a persecuted Christian remain patient and faithful in spite of all the things the world will do against it? Only by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Only by the presence of the Holy Spirit and their relationship with Jesus. By building on that relationship with Christ, by walking with him every day, by seeking the Holy Spirit's power, that's the only way we get through anything the world's going to throw at us. I don't know what's going to happen in America. I just know what's happening around the world. And it's not good. And it very well could come to America. We could see many of the things that are happening around the world happening in our country in the future. I don't know. I don't know. But we ought to get ready just in case. Amen? We ought to be building our relationship with Jesus. Amen? We ought to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Someday every person, here's the comfort. Someday every person will be judged by God for the way they live their life. And it's not just the book of Revelation or the New Testament. The entire Bible teaches this concept. Ecclesiastes 3.17. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. God has set aside a time for everything. Remember? Remember? Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for everything, everything under the sun. There's also going to be a time of judgment where the wicked will pay the price for their actions. Those people who do persecute God's body, the body of Christ, they will be judged for that. How will we know when that happens? Well, Revelation tells us. Revelation describes a set of trumpets that will announce God's judgment on this world, on this earth. Number two, the first six trumpets of God's judgment are right here in chapters 8 and 9. Let's go to chapter 8. What, Joss, what John sees in this passage here, what he saw next in his vision, 
it must have shaken him. It, it must have. It had to. He gives a real sense of shock as he talks about these visions of God's judgment. And as we read them, think about these. Visualize these in your mind taking place in your town. Think about them happening around you. And they are shocking, aren't they? Now, I need to stop and say something for a moment. For 1,600 years, 1,700 years, Christians have disagreed about where the church will be when the end of time comes. The answer is we really don't know because we're not told exactly that moment. We don't have the timetable of God's judgment. We don't have the timetable of God's uh, bringing the end to the, to the time, uh, history to an end. Some Christians believe the church will be taken out in the rapture before the judgment ever begins, before it ever starts to take place. Some believe the church will be taken out about halfway through somewhere. Others believe it will happen at the end of time when Jesus returns in chapter 19, Revelation 19, where he rides that white horse, and he comes in and the armies of heaven are falling after him. Others believe that. But the Bible doesn't give us an exact timetable for that to happen. There's lots of speculation. There's lots of ideas. But nobody really knows for sure. I personally have come to believe, after studying this for some time, I believe the church is going to be here all the way through the judgment. And I'm going to explain how I come by that here in just a little bit as I talk about the rest of the sermon. But this is what I believe. I just that's, I believe this is what's going to happen. That Christians will suffer persecution, but not the wrath of God. And there's a major difference with that. Revelation shows us that God's wrath falls only on unbelievers who become more and more wicked as the, as the judgment of God is unleashed. So, God's judgment against the world will begin when six angels begin to blow a trumpet, each one of them in their own turn, one by one. The first four angels are described introducing God's judgment on the world in chapter 8, verse 6 to 12. So let's look at chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. These are the first four angels and the trumpets. Verse 6, then the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. If you don't like to mow your yard at judgment time, you won't have to. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the, in the sea died, and a thir third of the ships was destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them would turn dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Let me ask you, doesn't that sound awful? Now, when you, you might say, well, Gary, if the church is here, isn't that going to be awful for us? Think back for just a moment. Think back to Exodus. When Moses went back to Egypt, what happened? The judgments of God fell on Egypt, right? Where were the Hebrew people? Anybody know? They lived in a part of Egypt called Goshen. All those judgments, the flies, the swarms of frogs, the, the darkness, the, blood, the water turned to blood, all of those things never happened to Goshen. I don't know how God's going to do it, but God is going to take care of his people. He will take care of his people. If I am right, and it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong, this is my belief. I'll be taking, if I'm here, I'm going to be taken care of. 
I'm going to get to see God do something miraculous in this world, really, truly miraculous, taking care of his people, the body of Christ. Now, the world is going to hate us even more, and they're going to come against us even more, but somehow we're going to be protected from God's wrath because God doesn't put his wrath on his own people. God's righteous judgment is described here in chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. And it all happens very, very quickly, doesn't it? It sounds very fast. John's watching this vision of the future, and a third of the earth's surface was scorched. A third of the earth. A third of all the sea life was killed. A third of all water was ruined, causing many people to die. And then a fourth trumpet was blown, and all the natural light was reduced by a third across the entire world. Can you imagine the power? can make that happen that's the God we serve and the God we serve who can do those things can take care of his people he's doing it today amen 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 he is yeah John is describing God taking back by force his creation he's taking back the world he made from an ungrateful people people who didn't care who, who worship created things instead of worshiping the creator it's an ugly passage. It's, it's ugly. It's abrupt. The world is going to be totally shocked. You think the environmentalists would go crazy now? Wait till this happens. They're really going to go crazy. To see a third of the world destroyed like this, it's ugly. It's powerful. Now go to chapter 9, verse 1 and 5. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Wow. This gets worse. It's going to be worse. The fifth angel blows his trumpet and, and John says a demonic horde. This horde is released to prey upon everybody who does not have God's mark on their forehead. Did you know we mostly think about the mark of the beast when, when we talk about Revelation, don't we? We think about the mark of the beast, the 666. Don't live in Topeka because the zip code is 666. That's a joke, by the way. It is 666, but a lot of good people live there. But we think about the mark of the beast, but we don't think about the fact that God marks his people too. He marks them to protect them, to exclude them, or to bring them off to the side and separate them from his wrath. So I don't fear God's wrath because I'm not going to go through God's wrath. That's what Jesus promised me. That's what my faith in Christ means. That's what the Bible teaches, by the way, also in Isaiah 54, verse 14. In righteousness, you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. The Bible teaches that God's people are safe in the hands of God. In spite of what the world goes through, in spite of what the world is doing, we can trust in Almighty God. He is God alone. Notice Revelation 9, verse 6. Though. This is something that I find really amazing. During those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. 
God won't even allow the wicked the blessing of death. And that's something. Supernaturally, he will not let people die. They will suffer and suffer and suffer. Does that sound cruel? It might sound cruel, but remember, God is enacting his justice through his judgments, and his judgments are righteous. So who are we to say God is cruel? Who is anybody to say that? Now go to chapter 9, verse 13 to 19. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpets, release the four angels who were bound in the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. And horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were like fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. Here we see another judgment, a great judgment, a judgment of death now. And it's not an easy death. It's like being put to death by gas, sulfur, smoke, and fire. Those are not good deaths. This is what the wicked are going to suffer. The wicked who persecute God's church, the wicked who kill God's people, who cut off their heads, who take their children and their women and molest them all. This is what they're going to go through. Wow. God is waging war against these people, these people who have rejected Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. They've rejected Christ, or they would not do the things they do. Verse 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping the demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their beliefs. They would not repent. Reminds us again of Exodus. Pharaoh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I repent. I'm not going to do that. You harden my heart. Remember that, Exodus? Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart. God finally hardens his heart instead. Now, if the church is on earth at this time in 20 verses 20 and 21, the church is not going to suffer God's wrath. I keep telling you because I want you to get that in your mind. But the church will suffer more and more persecution. We need to be ready for that. We need to be willing to, to endure that. We need to understand that. I think that's why John wrote this in chapter 13, verse 10, Revelation 13, verse 10. He said, he who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the parts of the saints. God will allow his church to suffer. He's already allowing it today. Eighty percent of all religious persecution in the world today is against Christians. So to say that, that well, God would never do that, he's doing it right now. It's, the world is seeing it right now. Paul gave Timothy another sign for the end of time that it was near also, so we could know when the end of time is near. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, he says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. 
People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, I tell you what, that's today, isn't it? Isn't that going on today? Don't we see our world around us all caught up in, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4? I believe this is so, so very true in our day. The book of Revelation tells us it's going to be this way. The Bible tells us it will be this way until Jesus comes back. So church, we got to be ready, amen? Yeah. And if we get raptured at the beginning and I'm wrong, praise God, hallelujah. Right? If we go out halfway through, praise God, hallelujah. But if we don't, we better be ready. We need to be ready. Don't lose faith in Christ. No matter what the world does, no matter what it throws at you, no matter what it does against the church, don't lose faith in Christ. And remember, in the end, God wins. Remember, there's a seventh trumpet that will blow. This is the victory trumpet. This is the final. This is it. Point number three, the seventh trumpet will sound for God's kingdom. And this is, the, this is the victory. Go to chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh, seventh angel sounds his trumpet, and there was sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. Wow. The seventh trumpet will sound for God's kingdom to come, that it will be inaugurated, it will be known. Revelation has shown us over and over and over, if you read carefully, that heaven is a very noisy place. There's lots of things going on in heaven, lots of voices. Verse 15 says there were loud voices in heaven. There should be loud voices in God's church. Isn't that true? Praising God, thanking God, seeking God. Maybe noisy isn't the right word. Maybe lively is a better word. There's a lot of life in heaven, eternal life. Heaven is full of life, much different than this world. In verse 15, the loud voices in heaven said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, here's the big thing. There's a, here's a really big blessing, I think. God has judged the world for its wickedness. He does that for its rejection of Jesus Christ. But when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, this world will no longer be out of control. God is going to bring it all back into control. Evil and death will be banished forever. Sin will be gone, never to be known again. And God will no longer be opposed by Satan or anyone else. We will, know, we will no longer know any of that. It will all be gone. Heaven will far and away make up for whatever we go through in this life. Because heaven will never end. And it will be perfect and holy and wonderful. Jesus ensured this would come true. He ensured it. He put a stamp of guarantee on it. He said it's going to come true because of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 22, listen, for as in Adam all die, which is true, Adam introduced sin. So in Christ all will be made alive, all who believe in him. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to, to God, the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. The only time the kingdom will come, the only time, we know this for sure, because Corinthians tells us this, is when Jesus defeats this world completely and utterly and does away with Satan and sin, death. I believe the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11 is the trumpet that's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And we love that, don't we? We love this passage, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord two weeks Forever. That's right. Forever. I love that. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So I hope today you walk out of here feeling encouraged. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to be encouraged because God wins. Amen. And we're going to be with him forever. And then will come the final judgment. Revelation 20. Verse 11. John says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne with him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. Verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown in the lake of fire. Final judgment. Now, we love Revelation 19, right? Flip real quick over there. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. A white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus coming into this world, coming out of eternity into this world. And the angel armies are right behind him, closely following him. We love that vision, right? Because he's coming to the rescue. He's coming to make things right. It depicts Jesus coming into the world triumphantly, not as a savior, but as a judge. The angel armies of heaven are fallen, but when we get to Revelation 20, 11, we get uncomfortable. Why? Because we have to go stand before a judge. He describes the judgment seat of God. And we have to be around there too. We have to see what's going on. And John says he saw a great white throne with God sitting on it. And from that throne, he will judge all the people according to their deeds or their works that are recorded in various ledger books. Did you know that the Muslims believe, they actually believe that God, their God keeps a book of records? That their, their good deeds must outweigh their bad for them to even have a chance to get into paradise? They don't know for sure if they're going to go to heaven or paradise or wherever. So they have these ledger books. They believe God, their God keeps a ledger book. Well, here it says that God does too. The unbelievers, they have a ledger book. They want to get to, to salvation. They want to be saved by works. Well, God will test them according to their works. And guess what? That test, they will fail. God will judge them according to their deeds or works. Now, why, how do they fail? I've had people tell me to my face, they believe that God will let them into heaven because they've done enough good deeds, or they haven't done anything so bad that God will keep them out. Now, they've never been able to define for me what's so bad. 
is. I've never been able to define that other than say they didn't kill somebody or do something horrendously bad. Now, people like the idea of Hitler going to hell, right? Amen, don't you? Yeah, Hitler was a wicked man. Joseph Stalin, wicked man. Mao Zedong, wicked man. Lots of wicked people. We like the idea of the wicked people going to hell. But when people hear that the only way to get into heaven is through Jesus Christ by faith, well, then they say, well, that sounds kind of narrow. That sounds kind of judgmental. That sounds kind of harsh. But that's the, way, that's the way God made it. That's the way God said it's going to happen. It's his way or no way. Verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. The key is the book of life. The key is to the Lamb's book of life is what it's called. So Jesus is either the Lord of your life or he's not. That's pretty simple. That's pretty black and white. He either is or he isn't. He's either your way into heaven or you don't get in. And that's not because of me or you. It's the way God decided it was going to be from before the creation of the world. Why would Jesus die on the cross if all it took for you and me to get into heaven was to do enough good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds? I tell you what, though, I'd be working a lot. I'd be doing a lot of trying to figure out new ways to do good deeds, right? Because we are sinners. Let's face it. We're, we're on a different path. Our sins are forgiven. But we're still sinners. We're sinners who are saved. In Romans 14, verse 9, For this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You know, when Satan gets thrown into the abyss and the abyss gets thrown into, into hell, Jesus is still Satan's Lord. You ever thought about that? The people who die and go to hell, that rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is still his Lord. So what you need to do more than a bunch of good deeds, which you should do good things in Jesus' name to bring glory to him, that's true. What you need to do is simply this, accept the free gift of grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers to everyone who believes in him or would believe in him. That's what you have to do. And then he'll take care of the rest. He'll work on you. You've got to surrender your life. You've got to let him mold you and rebuild you. But if you'll do that, he'll take care of the rest. God's grace is the only way into heaven. That's just it. And it's not cheap. It cost him his son. And it cost his son his life. And the only way to have God's grace is to accept what Jesus did for each and every one of you on the cross when he died and in the tomb when he rose up and came up from the grave. Because of Jesus in our lives, we can sing Amazing Grace. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, our last song of the day. If you'd like to make a decision for Christ, if you're feeling led to do that, to, to make that decision to become a Christian and faith in Christ, maybe rededicate your life, maybe join the church, maybe uh, be called into a ministry, I don't know. Let God lead and direct you. Let's stand and sing and get ready to sing Amazing Grace.